Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. First up today is Alchemia, or Alchemia. Alchemia is the is a library, or well, it's a project within KDE whose aim is to unify or universalize maybe financial information within your desktop. So, for instance, let's say that you fire up Amarok, the music player. Which, by the way, I don't even think Amarok. I haven't seen an update for Amarok in ages. Maybe that's changed recently. I don't. I don't know. Anyway, let's say you fired up Amarok, the music player, and you go to some digital music store within Amarok, Jamindo, or 7Digital, or whatever, whatever's out there right now. I guess 7Digital's still out there. I don't know if Jamindo is still out there. Um, but you go to the store, and you buy your favorite album, and you pay some money for it, and this all is a transaction through Amarok. It, of course, it's not going through some sort of... A, Amarok Corporation, it's, it's, but because of all the different integration that KDE has with web browsers and things like that, it's easy to make things happen, you know, in a different client than your web browser. So you pay the money to 7Digital through Amarok, and then the next time that you start up KMyMoney, or Scrooge, the two financial, KDE financial applications, you get a notification that, hey, you spent 10 bucks on this album, you should ensure that this $10 comes out of the right account, you know, out of the right column in, in K My Money or Scrooge or whatever. Or, conversely, maybe you sell something on your local, your local, um, uh, trading site, your, your eBay or your Trade Me or whatever you have in your area, Craigslist, whatever. You sell something. You get an email confirming that something is sold for 35 bucks. And the next time you fire up K My Money or Scrooge, you get a notification that you've got an, you just had an income of $35. Please make sure that you classify that and tag it and do whatever you need to do correctly. So this points to, I mean, the library itself, Alchemia, that's all I have to say about it. It's that, that's what it is. That's what it does. I don't have a whole lot of insight in terms of how it does those things or what it parses to figure out that you've got an income and so on. And, and I, I'm not going to go read the source code just to pretend like I have an understanding of that. Um, the, you know, I think, I think we all probably, maybe some of us have a good enough idea of how libraries work and how applications are able to use shared code in order to have a common language between them. The significant thing here is though, I think that this points to KDE's very, very strong desire. And this goes back all the way to to the KDE 4.0 release event back at Google headquarters in Mountain View or wherever I was when I intended that. You can go back and listen to episode uh, 202-ish or something like that. And 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 here, a podcast that I did from, from that event, it's not very insightful. I, I actually wouldn't bother going back and listening to it. But but I was there, and I remember one of the, the key points was the integration of the KDE desktop and how important it was 
that when you sat in front of your desktop, you felt like it was helping you organize your your day. It was helping you figure stuff out in your own life, not in a philosophical sense, but just in terms of what you needed to get done. And that was a, a big push of like the activities feature in KDE, which we haven't really talked about yet, but eventually we'll get there. The the, the idea that you can launch a, a sort of an environment that knows or, or, or that you would use while at work, and then you can go home and launch a different environment that you use when you're home. And so your work one might might emphasize and have shortcuts and things like that to your, I don't know, spreadsheet application and your work email application and so on, whatever other uh, whatever else other people use at work, maybe a terminal or an IDE, something like that. And then you go home and there are, you know, you, you go into a different desktop where your um the things that you do for fun are located. You know, your your game launchers and and your terminal and your IDE and whatever else other people do for fun. I don't really know. Either of these either of these things. Work and fun for me are, are essentially they've become combined now. So I don't think of my I don't really have that much division between what I do for money and what I do for fun. So which is a great place to be, but but it also means that there's not really a whole lot of a need for me to sort of switch different activities. But there was a time where that was that would have been important to me and was significant and something that I did look into. Uh unfortunately the activities wasn't quite as developed back then as it is now, so not quite there. But the point being the I, the the goal here is to get your computer, your computing device, sort of in sync with you, and that one of, one of the key components there is that your applications are talking to each other. And and in the previous episode, we saw that happening with Akinati, where you'd have a, a contact in one application and then have access to that contact in another application. And that I mean, you just you you want that, you need that. You don't need it, but you do want it. And I think that historically, that is very frequently a a puzzling critique of open source software and i say it's puzzling because frankly i've not had i've not seen that elsewhere i haven't seen other platforms providing that level of integration either so the fact that open source seems to be critiqued for not having it seems like the the pot calling the kettle black you know it's just like well well yeah sure it's it's not it's not here but it's not there either and i think I think a lot of people have sort of this this ideal this idealized kind of marketing story where as long as you stay a hundred percent true to exactly just the thing that you're provided on your computer. So if you're buying a Mac, all you use are the i applications. I don't know if they actually call their applications i whatever anymore, but you know just 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 the Apple produced software. If that's all you ever do, then yes, maybe there is a hundred percent integration and coherency. I doubt it, but let's pretend like there is. But in, it doesn't matter if we pretend like there is, because in real life, what people actually do is not that, right? That's why there are quote-unquote third-party application vendors. That's why Adobe exists, right? Because people do not find the, let's say, photo editing application provided with your computer sufficient, and so they buy a different software package and in, and use that. And of course it's it's supposed to be on the third party vendors to leverage native libraries so that their application can uh, integrate 
with the other applications. But it just in practice, it just doesn't happen that way. And so the reality is that nobody's got a fully integrated system. And KDE is very much trying to ensure that at least within the domain that they control, which is the Plasma Desktop and all of the KDE applications, within that domain, they want to ensure that they've got the ability to make things talk to each other, whether it's about contacts and phone numbers and email addresses through Akinati, or whether it is through Alchemia for financial information. And there's a whole group in the KDE community called the KDE Finance Group, uh, and, and that's what they do, is they they are they are trying to work on transactions. When when you do a financial transaction through your computer, which in this day and age is not uncommon, and, and shouldn't be uncommon, that, that that's the kind of modern, you know, future world we should be living in. It should be very easy to get to your money through your computer. So when you do that, it ought to be very easy to track your money through your computer. And I just love this idea, although in practice so far I've not been able to take advantage of it. Um, simply because Alchemia is relatively, I think, new, because it certainly isn't installed on my system right now, uh, but it is in the Slackware current directory. So I I'm gathering that it's rather new, um, and I'm also not really, I, I haven't traditionally been much of a K-My-Money or Scrooge user, but with current, or, or 15.0, uh, I, I might I might start leaning in that direction just to see what Alchemia can do for me, because uh, especially in New Zealand, the ability to do transactions on the computer is really, really smooth. Like, it's shockingly smooth here in New Zealand. The banking system is just really really nice uh from a user perspective i don't know anything about the back end i'm not i don't work in banking but but it, it is really nice i mean you want to give money to someone for something that they've that they, you've purchased off of them all they do is they tell you their bank account number and you go into your bank website and type that in and then the money transfers it's just really really sublimely easy you don't need extra applications like paypal or venmo or, or whatever else there is these days it's just completely transparent it's it's completely uh it's just all, all the banks do the same thing it's it's really easy so it's quite nice and i could see myself using alchemia and using or rather not alchemia directly because it's just a library that other libraries are going to or other applications are going to be using but i could see myself using my um k my money or scrooge to track certainly work expenses things like that so i don't know it could be interesting could be cool but yeah, functionally, right now, what I'm interested in this for is just the idea or, or the, the way that this sort of displays the goals of KDE and the goal of integration and how, how really very seriously they they take it, which is great. That's, like I say, that's what we want in a, in, a, in a desktop. Or it's what you might want in a desktop. I mean, you might not want it. And in that case, you don't have to use KDE. You could use something else. But certainly if... If that's what you're interested in, if you're curious about that sort of thing, if you're looking for that kind of functionality, then Alchemia is the thing bringing it to your desktop. Okay, now let's talk about Analitza. Analitza is another library. I'm going to bring it up here, Analitza. There are no uh, there, there are no binary executables being distributed with this. This is exclusively a bunch of header files in the include folder, user include, um, a bunch of CMake folders or, or uh, files in, in CMake, uh, that is user libs64 CMake, uh, some 
QML files, some shared objects, and that's pretty much it. But An Analyza is a mathematical library. It's the KDE Mathematical Library. It lets developers add mathematical features to an application, such as symbolic computations, numerical methods, graphs. It can plot graphs. It can write equations out you know, in fancy equation notation. It isn't something people are going to think, oh, this is using Analyza. Probably most users are just going to more or less take it for granted. I mean, that's what we do. When an application does something cool, we just we don't think, oh, I wonder what library it's using to achieve that. It's just part of the application. But for instance, KAlgebra, if you have that installed, and if you're running KTown or Slackware Current, you you probably do, unless you explicitly ex excluded it. If you're running that, then you can open it up. I don't know, should I be talking about this yet? I mean, this isn't this kind of cheating. This is uh, this is going this is leapfrogging over Analyza and going straight to KAlgebra. But you know what? It's worth it. So if you open up KAlgebra, then, I mean, it's it's a cool little, it's basically your scientific calculator replacement. Like You don't need a hardware scientific calculator, you've got KAlgebra. So, for instance, if you do, in the calculator tab, you can do something like, I don't know, 3 plus 3, and it tells you that the, the answer to that is 6, which is correct. You could also do 3 times, oh, I select it again, 3 asterisk the word pi, then it gives me a, a result there, 9.4247779607, which I imagine is correct. It sounds right. should be 9-something anyway. So the fact that it knows what pi is, that's, as far as I understand, that's Analyza at work. I could also do something like um, 3 space times... No, no, actually, I think I just have to do times parentheses 3 comma 3, for instance... And that, that understands, it, it knows what that means. That's a function, times is an analyza function, as far as I understand. Uh, and that's 3 asterisk 3. I guess to get confirmation on all of this, we could look at slash user. Let's do um, user include analyza. No? Okay, what am I looking for here? User include, oh, analyza with a capital A. Analyza 5, uh, analyza, and let's go to expression maybe? Possibly operations or operator. Just trying to get a sense for what this actually provides. Is vector, is matrix. That's not really what I'm looking for. Operator, maybe? I guess a grep would probably be a much better way of doing this. Yeah, let's do that. Grep times. Actually, I'm going to have to do a find on user include analyza5 type f exec grep times bracket bracket slash colon and yeah it looks like plus times minus divide quotient these are all functions within analyza to provide the uh, the results of, of those common of those common phrases so in KAlgebra the fact that you have access to those is thanks to analyza and you can you can see what you have access to in KAlgebra just by starting to type a letter. So for instance, A brings up and, approx, abs, arc sine, arc cosine, arc tangent, arc cotangent. B brings up nothing. C brings up a bunch of other things, ceiling and cosine and CSC and COT and, and, and so on. And you can just do that and it pops up with the results. So that's kind of nice, nice discovery um, method there. Um, you can also, if you go to the 2D graph and go to the add tab you can add a function to your graph for instance let's just do um, sine 
x. Just look at a sine wave along the x-axis. Give that a color, which it kind of defaults. It cycles through a bunch of different colors. So mine right now is uh, bright green. And and sure enough, that, that displays on the two-dimensional graph a little sine wave along the x-axis. And uh, of course, I could make it... Can I, how can I delete these? Can I get rid of these? Don't know how to get rid of a function in this application. I can deactivate them at least. Okay, yeah. So now I'm going to add something, and I'll say, like, sine, sine, let's do, like, x times 3. Does it, does it let me do that? Yes, it does. Cool. So you can modify your sine wave with, with more complex equations. And, I mean, certainly you could use different functions as well if you know what you're doing. I, I don't know what to do with a graph, to be honest. So I, I, sine wave was the simplest. That, that's the simplest thing that I could think of, and even that I stole from the world of synthesizers, musical synthesizers, because I don't actually understand any of this on a mathematical level. Um, but that's that's Analitza. That's what it's doing. That's what it does for your KDE desktop. Next up is... Oh, let me close the Analitza thing. Okay, so next up is Arc. This is a, a really cool one. Arc is the zip and and archive tool. Arc archive for KDE. So if I go into, let's go into my demo directory and, well actually I wouldn't want to do that first. Let's, I'm going to just launch Arc. It is a pretty unassuming window when you first launch it. It's an empty window with a couple of buttons that are not active along the top and you can choose from the menus what you want to do to start with. I guess the one way to start would be to create something new. So you're creating a new archive. You can give it a, a, a name, a file name. Well, first of all, you can specify what path you want this to go into. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna select my demo directory for that. So that's where I'll be saving my file to, and I'm going to call it arcexample1. The type, you got lots of different types, depending on what you have installed. So I've got 7-zip installed, and arc is aware of that, so 7-zip archive is an option. Java archive, tar archive, tar with bzip, compression, tar compressed, I don't know what that is, tar with gzip, tar with lrzip, lzip, lisma, xz, and then finally a zip archive. So lots of different choices there, and as I say, it's, it's dependent upon what you have installed, so people who don't care about what format they're creating and all they want to do is create a new archive won't have to choose between a bunch of different things, they'll just be able to choose from zip and tar with either gzip or bzip probably so it'll be kind of a simple a simple matter and if people do care then then they have the choices for that as well so anyway i've created a thing a, an archive in my demo directory it's called arc example one and it opens it, it, it takes me back to the arc uh, window and it uh, with a little notification at the top that says that the archive will be created as soon as I add a file. So if I just go over to my file system here and grab something to put into this, here's a, an auto tools demo that I did at some point. I'll add that file and it, I drag and drop and it adds it to the archive. And now I know that I've got an archive somewhere in demo called arcexample1.7zip with an auto tools demo in it. Simple as that. So I'll open arc back up. Well, I should actually, before I do that, I'm going to say, very often you won't interact with ARC that way. Very often what you might do instead is select a folder or a file and right-click on it 
and go down to Actions, and then choose Archive Folder. If I could find Archive Folder. Archive and Encrypt, Decrypt, Archive and Encrypt. Where's the Archive one? There's the normal Archive one. Actions, Archive and Sign, Archive and Sign, Archive and Encrypt. Oh, Compress, Compress, that's what it is. Compress here as tar gz, uh, compress here as zip, or compress to. These are options that interact with arc. So if I if I open if I go to compress to, then that does open up that initial arc sort of uh, chooser for what what kind of archive you want to create and where do you want to create it that sort of thing. If I just choose compress here as tar gz for instance it just automatically invokes arc without me knowing about it and just does the thing that i asked it to do which is quite nice okay so here's arc example 1.7 zip if i click on that that opens up arc and i think that's another way that you will i think that's one way that you knowingly interact with arc this i will admit used to really be jarring to me because i feel like on on my old os that I transferred from when I switched to Linux, which if I recall correctly, well, I know it was macOS, but if I recall correctly on macOS, when you unarchive an archive, it just unarchives it. And it opens up, the, if there was a subdirectory, it opens up that directory in a new file manager window, which they call a finder window. And, and there's your stuff, it's, it's unarchived. I don't believe there's a way to sort of open, if I'm recalling correctly, there was not a way to open an archive and view the files in it without necessarily extracting them to your hard drive. I understand that in order to see the archive, something's getting un uncompressed, but um, I guess, I don't know, actually, there could be a, a file index or something in some archive formats. But anyway, point being, it used to very much confuse me that there was a whole application dedicated to the archival process that didn't as someone not used to anything but Mac at the time, it used to very much confuse me that that, was, that that happened, and it felt a little bit strangely archaic to me. I just thought it seemed backwards that you would have a whole application just to unzip a file, or untar a file, or whatever. And it, it didn't take me long to appreciate the change. I mean, it, you get used to it really fast. Well, actually, you know what? In a weird way, I don't know that I'm still I'm still not entirely used to it. I I don't think. But that's just my workflow. My typical workflow. No, I would say I'm used to it actually, because you're yeah. So my typical workflow is I just unarchive the thing, or I go into a terminal and look at the thing with tar tvf whatever, um, and and see what's in it. So in a GUI environment, I guess I do appreciate very much the ability to click on an archive, know that arc is going to sort of intercept that process for me and show me what I'm about to unarchive should I choose to do so. So how do you do an unarchive? Well, there's a bunch of different ways. You can drag a specific file out of the arc window and drop it to a place that you want. So for instance, let's say I want this make file and only this make file from my auto tools demo uh, to be unarchived to this demo folder called quarkus-quickstart. So I just drag and drop it. it, it extracts it, unzips it, and puts it in there. And if I open up the make file, I see that, yep, there's a make file, 700 and some odd li lines long, 742 long. Great, that worked. If I want to do a whole folder, I could do that as well. I can grab the am hello, drag it into this demo folder, and now I've got an am hello-1.0 with all the files inside of it extracted for me. 
So it's it's really, really a useful way to pick and choose what you want out of a big archive, which if you think about it is exactly what an archive should be. That is precisely what you would want when when given an archive. Like I don't I now that I'm thinking about it, why would you ever expect the default behavior to be to unarchive the entire thing no matter what? Why I mean, you put it in an archive, you're getting the, 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 the savings, um, for disk space savings, but you shouldn't have to take everything out of the box just to get the one thing that you want. And otherwise, it's not really an archive, is it? I mean, it is. It's a compressed archive. But I, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a big use case for just saying, well, I have this big cardboard box full of stuff because I needed it off my floor and on a shelf, and now I need one thing out of it. I don't want to dump the whole box out onto the floor. I just want to go fishing around and find that one thing. And that's what ARC can do. How well does it do that? Actually, really, really well. Let's say that there's something buried in the recesses of this AutoTools demo archive that I have. In ARC, I can click Find File and type in Main, let's say, and it filters it down so that I can find main.c, and if I needed it, there's also a main.o, there's a main.po, and that's it. And if I want that main.c, I can grab that and drag it to my folder, open it up in Emacs, have a look at it. There's the Hello World application. Looks good to me. So really, really convenient. Like, just so convenient. There's, um, that you don't even have to necessarily unarchive a thing. I mean, again, I know in order to see things and, and preview things, you're, you're technically unzipping it to RAM or something or to a temp folder. I don't know. I haven't looked. But, for instance, if I click on helloworld.c and then click on preview, actually, I don't even have to do that. I can just click on Hello World C. It opens it up in um, an ARC preview window, which, by the way, uses a really, really cool um, little library from the KDE framework. So it looks essentially like a Kate window. So it's got that little preview scroll bar on the right. Uh, it's got the syntax highlighting and the code collapsing. So it... it looks and feels exactly like just opening up in Kate, but you're not in Kate, you're in ARC, and you can preview that file so that you can confirm before you even bother unarchiving it that that's the file that you think it is and that, yes, it is worth uninstall or, um, rather, unarchiving. That's ARC. What what else can it do? A, a heck of a lot. It can also, let's say you, you have an archive and you realize, well, I didn't really need to archive that one file. Well, click on that one file click delete, it says, hey, you're about to delete this from your archive. Are you sure you want to do that? Yes, I do. And now it's deleted. It's gone out of your archive. Here's another one. Zero bytes. Why am I archiving a zero bytes file? Well, I'm not anymore because I've just deleted it. There's two more, actually. Now, all of these files are actually required by AutoTools, so I'm technically not doing myself any favors, but this is just for an example. So you can do that. You can edit the archive. You can add more ar uh, files to an archive. Which, of course, to you and me, doesn't seem like a big deal, but to some people, all of this is, is completely mind-blowing. Like, it, I didn't know until Linux that you could add files to an archive. I thought once an archive was created, it was created, and you can't, you couldn't change it. It was immutable. Not for any good reason, I just, that's just, I'd never had the experience of adding a file to an already created archive. I thought in order to do that, you had to double-click on the thing to unarchive it, put the new files into it, and then re and create a new archive that's just what i thought you had to do but it turns out that if i rename this hello world 
.c to um, foo.c, I can now drag it back into arc window, and it rolls it right into that archive, and now I've got foo.c in the same in this archive that existed already and i didn't have to unarchive it and create a new one or anything like that it was just it's a smooth transaction it is a compressed it's it's essentially a dolphin window except everything in it is compressed you can also test the integrity of an archive which is quite nice you go up to archive test integrity looks like it's got integrity that's good uh you can also look at the properties of it by clicking uh, archive properties and it tells you that the compression methods are bcj and lisma2. This is an archive type of 7-zip archive. It is a MIME type of application slash x-7z-compressed. Open read only, no. Password protected, no. Multi-volume, no. Has comment, no. Number of entries, 48 files, 7 folders. Unpacked size is 1.2 megabytes. Packed size is 89 kilobytes. Compression ratio is 13.5. And then it gives you a bunch of sum, uh, some uh, hash sums, so MD5, SHA-1, and SHA-256. Everything you need right there. It's really, a, really a nice little, uh, completely understated kind of application. You know, it's one of those that would be easy to just gloss right over and say, yeah, yeah, that's the thing that handles archives. And yet, it's really quite the workhorse. I mean, it, it's got it's got actions in your right-click menu in 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 the rest of your desktop, so there's that integration again. It, it's got a dedicated application itself, so you can open it up and, and manage archives all you want, and preview things, unarchive, extract everything, extract a single file, delete file, add file, find file, all that stuff, and and it's just, it's just an archive application. Completely easy to not really think of as an application. It's just kind of part of the desktop. And I think for a lot of people, like I say, that that is what an archive. That's what ar that's what archives are. It's just kind of part of the computer. It just that's just what computers do. They have zip files, and you can either open zip files or apparently you can create zip files. A lot of people don't ever really do that, but maybe some people do, and you, maybe you do it by putting everything into a folder and then you right click on the folder or something and make it make it compress. And and that's the extent of kind of their interaction. But archive or rather arc makes it makes archives sort of an important thing not that they have to be important but it does give you a lot of flexibility that you just don't necessarily think about otherwise something you just don't really you don't, don't really necessarily interact with on a normal everyday basis but once you have the option to do that then then it becomes a completely different experience and that was certainly my experience was that I never gave compre uh, compression or archives really much thought at all, never really understood how it worked, nor did I ever feel like I had a handle on how my desktop at the time did it. You know, like half the time I would think, I would get confused, I would think, now if I archive this, is that gonna, does that mean that this folder disappears, or does that mean a copy of it gets created as an archive? You know, I could never, it just seemed like I could never quite remember how it worked on kde is it's just so it is so explicit and clear and and robust and that's a great great thing about kde specifically i'm sure gnome does it really well as well i don't for some reason i'm, I'm drawing a blank as, on how it handles it right now but kde definitely really really nice experience really great application to handle it and it's one of those things that I, as far as i remember on kde it's always been there i don't remember a time where ARC wasn't there. I, I, I think it was in the 3.5 era as well. 
or three, is it three? Three or 3.5, whatever it was. Pretty sure it was on KDE 3, and it's been around on 4 and 5, and it's great. I love it. So you should check that out next time you do the very casual thing of typing in tar x or cvf foo dot tar bar baz. Um, you, you should try doing it in Arc sometime. It's, it's fun. Okay, so let's see. Should we have a coffee break? Yeah, we should probably have a coffee break. Let's let's go get coffee, and we'll come back. I'll take a little bit of listener email, I think, and then maybe talk about Articulate. We'll find out. Go get coffee. I hope that you also have coffee if you enjoy coffee. Let's talk about listener feedback here. I want to actually, before I get into the new listener feedback, I want to discuss the... I want to go back a little bit to Carl's email. Last week I read an email from Carl in which he was talking about a little SQLite sponsored project called Alt-HTTPD, which he he made a little adjustment for. And, and I, I got so distracted by the fact that I found out about a new HTTP daemon that I forgot to sort of, I think, focus in on what the email, I think, was actually about, which was that he says, I'm not new to computers, Linux, or even open source, but up until recently, I've been a consumer only. It's been just the past couple of years when I started to be a contributor in my own little way, and I must say it's been extremely rewarding. I think that was the, the thesis statement that I completely ignored in my excitement over discovering a new HTTP daemon, and I wanted to kind of address that now, because this is a very common thing, I think, which is that many of us are using open source, and in theory we're happy to contribute, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's really the avenue to contribute. And this is such a, 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 I feel like there's, this is a complex subject because just like with everything else in life, I guess, uh, you know, there's, 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 it's this combination of timing and where you are in your life and where the project is in its life and whether you have what it needs and whether it wants what you have and all of these other factors as to whether you can actually successfully contribute to a project. And if you go to a site like GitLab or any GitLab instance running on any popular website or uh, open source project website, like uh, for, for the GNOME people, you know, they have gitlab.gnome.org, uh, free, gitlab.freedesktop.org, all these other big projects have GitLab instances. You go to one of those, you look around and you think you see all the activity and you think, oh my gosh, there's a whole commute, there's a whole world out there of people just contributing and contributing and contributing all day. And I mean, it's true. There are people who sit at their desk all day long and just contribute to an open source project because they're developing that project. But there is this, you know, there's the peanut gallery, and, and that's you know me and and possibly you, dear listener, depending on who and what you do, who you are and what you do. But there's there are people who whose job, quote unquote, you know, whether it's actually a paid job or just what they do with their spare time job, um, it, you know, it's their quote unquote job to contribute to these open source projects. They're they're active maintainers, and there are a lot more of us than them, because that's just kind of how it works. And sometimes it, there's a almost a guilt 
factor involved of like, ah, oh, man, I've really used all this software and I haven't really given anything back. Now, conversely, there's sometimes a, 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 a thing where people think, well, I'm using your software. Isn't that enough? It's like, I'm supporting you by using your software. Isn't that enough? And, and sometimes that is enough honestly like that that can be enough it that's why the software is there it is there to be used and if you are using it then potentially someone appreciates that usage certainly i appreciate that usage because as i've said in previous episodes using open source helps sustain an open environment by which i mean if you aren't using open source then someone who is using open source is potentially being blocked by you from interacting with with something that they want to interact with. And I've, I'm sure that we've all seen this in real life at some point or another. You you, you want to do a thing online or, or across a network, but there's something that just is not open to you in order for you to do that. Or you want to collaborate with someone and you send them a file from your open project, from your open source application, and they are unable to open it with their closed application. Now, they might be able to send you something from, from their closed application, and you may be able to open it with your open application. But, you know, there's there's sort of a give and take there um, that becomes a lot more awkward when open source is not involved on both sides. So using open source does contribute, I think, to a, a larger and more open environment, which is great. But, you know, I mean, in some cases, using open source software isn't really enough. I mean, certainly, I think at a certain, at a certain mass capacity, it stops becoming enough. And sometimes that mass capacity isn't a big number, but at some point, the maintainer might look at the user base and think, okay, that's a pretty good user base. Really great that everyone that that 35 people are using it, or 3,500 people are using it, or 35,000 people are using it, whatever. But if they don't get any useful bug reports back from any of those users, then yeah, it's still great that people are using it, but it's it's not necessarily a contribution that you are using it after a certain point. And I don't like I say that number is going to shift depending on what project we're talking about. So there's complexity there as to whether you know sort of it is a gift to the world that you are using open source or not. As I say, I think it is generally a gift to the world to use open source. I, I really do. I think that's a, a great thing. It enables collaboration. It enables openness. I think that's an important important and undervalued thing. Oh, I know it's undervalued because if you look around at the number of Linux computers versus Mac or Windows computers at a tech conference, you, you see that it's undervalued. So I think there's there's value there. And yet at a certain point in in an open source user's life, we start to think about contribution and what we can do to kind of help out a little bit more, carry our own weight, as they say. And that can be complex too, because sometimes you have an idea that just isn't isn't an idea that, that is compatible with the way that an open source project sees itself. And so your idea may be perfectly valid and you did contribute something, you just didn't happen to contribute something that anyone wanted. And so you kind of get shot down or you get ignored or whatever. And that's happened to me more than, times than I can count. I mean, that's that's been, if I had to characterize my interactions as a contributor to projects, that is very off, that, that's how I would characterize it. That my feature request or that my code contribution does not align with what the project wanted or thinks is best, and so they they reject it. And that's fine. The first couple of times it happens, I will admit, it's a little bit difficult to take. It does start to get a little bit 
um, unsettling or discouraging. And I would say to you that that's not a bad thing. The whole statistics thing just is is kind of it bears itself out. Like you have to you have to throw ten darts at the board in order to get one in the bullseye or, or whatever. You know, I mean, it's just that's just how it happens. So I think that for a lot of us, rejection is going to be a pretty common common thing, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that your contributions weren't quite aligned with where you were putting them and that's okay sometimes that happens but at least you you made the contribution but other times that your contribution and the project are completely aligned what you want is also what they want and so when you give them the 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 code or the the logo that they were asking to have designed or the 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 re, the, the fix in the typo in the readme or a better tutorial or whatever it is that you're bringing to that project that's exactly what they needed. It gets accepted, and you feel pretty good about that, and you should. But you should also feel good about the times that you tried and, and they didn't accept it. I mean, all of those things are valid, and you should also feel good about just using the application in the first place. All of those things are valid contributions. But Carl's email, I think, again, was about the time that it got accepted, and I think that that's an exciting moment. I think for every open source user, I think that there's something really cool about that moment of when you have an idea of how to fix something and you pitch it to that project through whatever way you do, whether you're just filing a bug and saying, hey, this workaround worked for me, or whether you are sending in a code snippet that will literally fix the bug, like here's a patch. I've changed the code. I've compiled it. It now works. It didn't before. Here you go. Whatever form that contribution takes, that acceptance, that moment of acceptance, it, well, the, the word acceptance is a good choice, I guess, because it does feel a little bit like that. Yes, it got merged into the code base or whatever. Yes, it influenced that project to change something. And you feel really good about it. You feel like you've been accepted. You you are now part of open source. And that's a, a great moment. I think that's a really sort of a special thing that, you know, once again, you don't exactly get that outside of open source. Not not quite. I mean, you might. You might get that. But but in a way, it is kind of unique to to open source because there are so many projects out there that just don't that don't don't offer you that opportunity at all. The the best you can do is maybe post on a forum about how angry something makes you and maybe someone will agree that that's that's the best you get out of so many projects out there, not non-open source projects. The open source aspect of something where you can contribute, where you can interact with other real people making that project, it's it's a great, great thing. And I think I think that if it's not happening, that's fine. But when it does happen, it's really neat to experience. Okay, so let's move on to Deep Geek's completely bizarre email. And I say that with all the love in the world. Um so Deep Geek gets a lot gets up to a lot of weird activities and this one i had to read several times in order for me to understand what he was doing uh and i still don't understand why but that's the beautiful thing about hacking really so he says you may or may not know that i use a, a desktop a dm what is that d desktop manager no he must mean desktop de desktop environment anyway uh called lxcute I, I didn't actually know that uh, it is a window manager. It is window manager ag- agnostic, which I really love. I still find that Fluxbox fits me like a glove, but I like the desktop components being active. I also, from time to time, 
run kwin from plasma underneath lxqt. Okay, so this is clat2 again. That's not the weird part. This is a great thing about, well, a lot of window managers, is that they don't care. They're just Windows ma window managers. That is all they do. And when we say that, what 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 that means is, literally, when you launch a window, what manages that object? And one of the things you could use to manage that object, that, that window, is LXQt. Another one is Fluxbox. Another one is Openbox. Another one is whatever. And, and by managing, I just mean something needs to know where that window is on the, on the screen. Something needs to give you a handle so that you can move that thing from one side of the screen to another. Something needs to get the signal that you want that window to go away, and so on. That's a window manager, and that's all those things really, really do. Now, most of them have other components that you can launch, uh, that, that get launched by default. So strictly speaking, Fluxbox not only window manages your windows, it also gives you a little kicker or a panel, whatever, at the bottom of the screen, and you can use that to change your virtual desktop or to refer to the time or or to get a list of all the windows that are open in the task manager area and so on but at its core fluxbox just makes sure that there are that there's window decoration the little the title bar on a window that you've launched and because all that all fluxbox does is manage windows you can often launch a whole desktop around fluxbox and the only difference is that your desktop is not using its own window manager it is letting fluxbox perform that task for it so he's saying from time to time he runs kwin from plasma under lxqt the other day i set up this is deep geek again the other day i set up fluxbox on plasma and accidentally purely by pressing a hotkey too often minimized plasma under fluxbox as if it were a regular app i then killed an unfruitful afternoon attempting to get fluxbox to capture the plasma desktop and keep it to store that in a virtual desktop which i would love to find a way to do so this is class two again what deep geek is attempting here is he's he's saying what he would like to do is have, for instance, Fluxbox running. And in Fluxbox, by default, I think there are four desktops. And you can name them, and you can set more in the um, the init, the, the Fluxbox setup script or, or uh, file. Uh, and so there are four. And, and what he's saying is he, w he would love it to, to be in one desktop, in desktop zero, and there to be, I don't know, Fluxbox. Just Fluxbox with maybe, uh, maybe the Tint 2 little panel and um, a certain theme applied to Fluxbox, whatever. But then you'd like to be able to switch to Fluxbox Virtual Window 2 and have Fluxbox with Plasma running in it. So now you've got the KDE Kicker and the KDE Application Menu and the KDE System Tray and so on. And all the different KDE servers like KRunner, um, K, uh, what, what's the K, K Clipper, Clipper for the clipboard, uh, K volume or you know whatever the volume thing is K mix that's what it is and, and so on oh K color chooser that would be a good one all the widgets yeah all that stuff and then you'd like to be able to switch to desktop three and maybe have I don't know XFCE panel at the bottom of the screen and an XFCE panel at the top with all the XFCE widgets or applets as they call and so on so each virtual workspace desktop would have a different window manager or not um, a different desktop running inside of it. Now, 
um, he didn't he didn't get there. He did not get there. But he did find a post called journalextra.com slash Linux slash desktop slash multiple dash desktops dash on dash one dash Linux dash PC dash now dash that's dash greedy. With a little experimentation, he says, found a way he found a way to start X X sessions on one screen and toggle them by using Control Alt F7 for my first SDDM running a GUI interface. I could then do Control Alt F2 and run Start X and make Control Alt F2 a totally independent Fluxbox session. It seems to be a little distribution different. For instance, the article says you can start one on Control Alt F8, but that does not seem to be a thing on Debian. I bet you could make it a thing though, Deep Geek. That seems like something you can configure in um, uh, a Getty TTY or whatever, or a Get TTY. Yeah, that seems like something you could probably change. Um, I thought you might like to check this out, and if you hear of any way of actually making the virtual desktop switcher also change window managers, let me know. And he says that the command that he was using is start x dash dash vt8. Thus, I have Getty running on vt1 through 6, display manager starts and grabs vt for Zorg, then I can manually start another copy of Zorg on vt8. Okay, so that's what he's up to. And I, you know, it's just one of those things where I really think that Deep Geek, I, I don't know what the use case for this is. I think this is definitely just hacking for hacking's sake. And I love it. It's it's brilliant. I would love for this to be a thing. I've always felt like the virtual desktops on Linux, I mean, there's such powerful things, so powerful. But there, you know, once you go down that path, then you start getting greedy, as the blog post says. You start getting greedy and you want more. And and in a weird way, the virtual desktops just aren't aren't sandboxed enough. And I guess that's what one really wants, is like somehow, in some cases, sandboxed desktop environments. And that somewhat exists in theory on KDE, Plasma Desktop, in the form of activities. You can have separate activities that have different sort of uh, feels and environments to them, but the hierarchy of what can and cannot change between activities is still quite unclear and and seems to be inconsistent, I guess. It's, It's clear because you change it on one activity and then you go to the other activity and it's changed there as well. And you think, I really wish I hadn't done that. Um, but, but I, I, I yeah, I, I guess we're all still sort of, we're thinking about that, but it, it just isn't quite a reality yet. And yeah, I mean, changing, changing between TTY sessions, I guess, is, is one way to do it. Um, but, and, and certainly having a different user could, would, would do something similar to that. So, I mean, there, there are lots of different ways to get close to it, but just that sort of complete, almost sandbox environment for each virtual desktop so that you could just switch from one place to the other and have a completely different desktop running or something. It just, it sounds really, really intriguing. It sounds a little bit weird too, because I mean, how many notification systems would you really want to have system uh, running at one time? How many, um, I don't know, volume controls would you really want running? And would they receive, would they all receive the same information like if you adjusted the volume in one desktop is the other one looking to the same system to get that i guess it would be but i i don't know i I feel like the potential for collision is probably pretty great there i could be wrong though um it's an intriguing idea and i i don't know of any such project yet i will keep my eye out and and who knows maybe someone out there will know of something it's an intriguing idea and what a wacky idea it is and this is once again this 
this is why open source is so much fun because you can you can try these things that make really arguably no sense like just what's the use case for having kde or kwin or whatever it is on one desktop and then lxqt on another and then xfc on another and you know who knows what else well who cares it's it's still fun it's cool i mean maybe there is a use case i don't know deep geek didn't say explicitly why he was doing this sounds to me like he just got distracted by a shiny object and just went way too far down that path but i think that that's cool and and i love that on open source we have the ability to do that because you never know what it leads to and i mean heck swapping out the os 10 desktop for enlightenment was one of the big steps that i took towards linux i mean that was that kind of hackery was exactly what got me to fall head first into linux because i realized that the of the limitations of a non-open system and everything that the open system was providing me was letting me do and i mean after you see that difference you get a taste of the 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 sheer amount of freedom that open source affords you and and it's really just for i think a lot of people it's there's no there's no contest so keep it up deep geek i will look out for something that that sandboxes virtual desktops i don't have faith that i'm going to find one but I'll definitely keep an eye out for it. And thanks for sharing your adventures with me and all of the show's listeners. That's, of course, you, dear listener. And uh, it looks like it is time for you and me to part ways now because, yeah, we're at the end of the hour. It's it's all, the time is all used up. And besides, I hear the distinctive sounds of the end titles. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
there still is hope for him, for out of the day's events, a dim awareness is growing in him, a vague realization that perhaps the road he's on isn't quite the one he wants to travel.